Welcome to the Seven Third Podcast, a podcast about cinema. My name is Christopher Heron, and I'm the host of the Seven Third. It's also a video magazine that you can watch on at www.theseventhirt.org. I'm joined here today with the other two thirds of the Seven Third, both producers Brian Robertson and Pavan Mundi. Hi, Chris. Hi, Pavan. Hi, Chris. Hi, Brian. So we we are uh, here to discuss our interview with um, your friend Bruce McDonald. Right. And maybe you can. Uh, Say this how that a, came to be. This was well, our you facilitated. Yeah, this was our third. This was our third interview. Um, third issue. I, third issue. Right, right. I had been working at a video store in Toronto for a few years, and Bruce was a regular. Uh, he would come in and rap with us. And uh, since the magazine was pretty fresh at that point, uh, he was a logical choice. So I asked him uh, to meet up with us at a bar called Churchill on uh, Dundas and Ossington. And uh, yeah, so Bruce came through, and um, we hung out with him for about 90 minutes, I guess. Oh, how long is that interview? I don't think it's, it's 90 minutes. 70. 70 minutes. He had to go. He had to drop his kid off. His, his, uh, yeah, he's he, got a little he girl refused to, Yeah, he refused to drink, didn't he? He was <clears throat> well, he driving to, go, to yeah. meet his... He was going to a play, I think, or something. He was dropping Charlie off at a, um, a school play. So he had, to, he had a pretty hard exit. So yeah, he was drinking, uh, I think, tonic water with lime. Well, Chris got wasted. Yeah, I think I had two pints. This was back when we uh, we were still holding true to our uh, our philosophy of drinking yeah. during the interviews, which uh, I think we're gonna try to rediscover that. Well, Bruce is um Bruce Bruce has been known to uh, drink. Like he's a good you know he's he's, he's not privy not to drink. We went to uh, he took me to a Cour de Pirat concert at the Mod Club one time and. We got pretty drunk there, so I thought that he would he would have been game for it, but uh, no, he uh, stuck with the tonic water. Anyways, uh, I like I people did. at Churchill are really great. Um, you shot there more than once. Right? Yeah, we did. We also, we also filmed an MDFF twice. interview there, um, and they've been always uh, accommodating. They're really cool. This was uh, this is an interesting interview because. Uh, we we talk about all of Bruce's films. I don't yeah, think it, I don't think anything's left out. But it was like there's n- there's no set plan. I, I I vaguely recall Bruce talking about Stan Brackage at one point. Yeah. He also talked about a number of projects. Porno. We were talking about porno. Oh yeah, he was talking about screening Deep Throat at yeah. the Lure Cinema. Uh, he curated some oh, yeah. something and some he, pornography some festival. pornography festival. That's what he chose. <laughs> That's pretty cool. He's, I like Bruce a lot. He's um, full of, got tons of stories, and um, I don't know, he's fun. Uh, he also talked about his new film, uh, that movie, uh, John Coltrane, I Love Supreme. And Which is not out yet. Yeah, well, on IMDb it says 2010, so I don't know where that is. There was a fundraiser. Yeah, but he's got so many other ones, too. Does well, he he's, he's done yeah, since then? yeah, yeah. So let's take a trip back to our third issue and our interview with um, Bruce McDonald. Hope you guys enjoy. Enjoy. So um, I was struggling to try to find a way to to start this. And I I realized- Oh, cheers, let's do a cheers. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. Santé. Santé. What occurred to me when I was re-watching all of your films, and I, I don't think I really was actively aware of this leading up to it, is how many of them are adaptations. 
It's true, like from books and stuff, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Dance Me Outside. Uh, Tracy Fragments. Tracy Fragments, Pontypool. Uh, what else are we doing? Uh, Love Supreme we're doing now, it's from a book. Uh, uh, yeah, Highway 61 is a weird adaptation of <clears throat> um, the Bob Dylan record, Highway 61 Revisited, Coming Through Slaughter, and As I Lay Dying. Oh, wow. Yeah. So As I Lay Dying is the... Uh, it's a Faulkner. Yeah, no, but it's the, the I guess the... <laughs> I guess. They promised us that there were only two holes that they needed to drill. Oh, they're doing construction? So now that the drilling stopped, <laughs> I, I want, I, would it be the, the casket that you took primarily from As I Lay Dying? From As I Lay Dying, yeah, it was like the, some, somebody gave me this book and I was like quite taken with the idea of like, it's, it's a book about taking their mother's body on on a cart, I guess, yeah. across the country to barrier, right? And I was like, wow, that's great. And I had seen recently a film, God, what was the name of it? Same kind of thing, a coffin on the roof of a car and they take it, it's a Belgian film, I can't remember what it was called. But I was like, wow, that's, there's a whole genre of <laughs> carting bodies around on the roofs of cars and things. So yeah, that was, you know, y'all, I, I read a lot of books and stuff, so I tend to, <clears throat> get excited about them, like the, the Michael and Donchi one, the Coming Through Slaughter, that was about a uh, guy named Buddy Bolden in New Orleans at the turn of the century who was a barber by day and a trumpet player by night. And he was like a shitty barber, but an awesome trumpet player. Or maybe not a shitty barber, but so I kind of thought, you know, cause since we're starting at the other end of the highway, make our guy a barber, yeah. great barber, but a terrible trumpet player that needs to kind of go to, <clears throat> you know, go to the, the source, go to New Orleans to see his hero's spot. You know, so, you know, books like that uh, have always provided like a lot of good juice or character things. Yeah. Have you ever talked to Michael Andache about that? Uh, uh, about that particular thing? Yeah. You know what? I don't think I ever have. And uh, I met him actually short, actually, we were in the mixing theater. I think, yeah, we were in the, I remember very we were in the mixing theater, mixing Highway 61, doing the sound mix. Phone rings, and my assistant editor says, it's uh, Michael and Donchi on the phone for you. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, like I didn't know him, but I was a big, big fan, having read, you know, Coming Through Slaughter and Billy the Kid, and, and he gets on, he goes, oh, Bruce, this is Mike and Donchi, you know, like, uh, I hope you don't mind me phoning you, but I'd love to meet up with you and talk to you about a film project. <laughs> It's like, wow, you know? So I'm thinking, wow, maybe my dream of coming through slaughter is coming true. So we meet up on Bloor Street at the Lickin' Chicken or whatever it's called, and uh, he says, I want to make a movie of Billy the Kid. I'm like, wow, great, you know? Slightly disappointed because it wasn't coming through slaughter, but uh, and this was many years ago, and we finally, you know, we got to the, so I've got to know him over time, uh, mostly in, in conjunction with that, but <clears throat> Every time he has a new book come out, he'll have a book party or, you know, we've come to know each other or he'll phone and say, let's go to the movies. He loves movies. So yeah. we'll run out to the afternoon movies and we'll go see <clears throat> kind of whatever's going. But I don't think I've ever sort of 
told him how much I've stolen from <laughs> coming through slaughter. He's funny. He doesn't sort of talk about his. He just he likes to talk about movies. He doesn't really want to talk about books or himself too much or his uh, projects. And he's always and when he's writing on a new book, he's always quite secretive of like what it is. He doesn't. I guess that's a kind of a good thing when you're a writer because if you talk it, then you won't bother writing it. But uh, yeah, big big fan of his. And uh, I don't know, like Roadkill was not a book. I'm trying to think if there's some other books. Some other books that I love that I would, you know, make want to make a film of one day. But well, the Tracy Fragments is it's a it's an outright adaptation, but it's also maybe the most formally uh, insistent film you have. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, just in terms of committing to some crazy device and and not not uh, varying come on in come on in <laughs> which was a shock to the writer uh, Maureen Medved who wrote the book the Tracy fragments yes. you know it's like a great book little book but still you know you pluck from the book you know uh, the story you're gonna tell and leave behind a lot of other parts of the book so it's a cut, you know. It's a grim, kitchen sinky, tough little story in a way about you know the girl trying to find her brother who she feels guilty about. Um, and when I suggested to Maureen, I said, "Well, maybe we'll do this whole thing sort of split screen because I've been playing with the split screen stuff in uh, Picture Claire, and we were trying it out in there because I thought it was really groovy. I'd done, <clears throat> always been a big fan of uh, the Thomas Crown Affair." with all the split screen stuff and I just thought it was just a really cool thing and especially with Tracy which was like a super low budget film <clears throat> that we shot with natural light and a very small crew and very quickly uh, wasn't a lot of production value either but we didn't you know it was barely enough for props and clothes so <clears throat> the challenge of trying to create a, a micro budget sort of independent film with some style I love this split screen thing so I thought well that's a pretty cost-effective way to create a radical and interesting style because it's all done in editing so um, it was a long edit uh, but comparatively to production and you know the things it doesn't really cost much but it provided this kind of kapow visual like you know not for everybody's taste but it, it really made the film quite unique and I think if we had done it pretty straight up uh, which we intended to do at one point, but we were so exhausted by the time we finished the six months of editing with three editors, we were like, uh, we didn't bother doing it. Did the, uh, the idea to uh, offer all the fragments and torrents come before or after the decision to do that kind of modular editing? Um, in the Tracy fragments? Yeah. Um, like when did we decide to, to, to... Yeah, did you decide first to have the kind of... I can't even call it split screen because there's so right. many splits. <laughs> right. Um, but like that, the, the composition where there are these kind of nodes, um, did that come before the decision to offer up the, uh, the streams to be re-edited? Oh, right, for on, yeah, online. Yeah. Well, it partly came out of the idea that we were still curious a little bit about what the film would look like just as a straight movie. And since we were all pretty much exhausted by that time, we thought, well, let's just put it all online. Let's put the 
let's put the all the rushes online and have somebody else do it. And uh, <clears throat> so people, when they got the keys to the editing room, so to speak, people would cut little trailers or they would cut uh, <clears throat> rock videos. And somebody cut, I think, a pretty straight version of the movie. Because, you know, you go, you find the script, and then you just like, well, cut the movie, you know, because it's all there. Um, so, yeah, I thought that was a pretty neat project. What's interesting is that you, you, you felt that they would cut it linearly, which is, to me, really amusing because it's like with uh, The Godfather or Memento, where when, once these uh, films come out, it's assumed that people want to then see them in a way that takes away the, what's interesting about the form to begin with. So, if, to me, like what's so invigorating about Tracy Fragments is that style. Yeah. But you were you say you're expecting when you put it out there that someone's just gonna edit it together in a linear fashion. Uh, well, we didn't know exactly what they were gonna do. Yeah. It was funny, you know. Like, I mean, part of the hope was that somebody would, because we knew how complicated it was to kind of create the split screen. It's very, it was very time consuming. So we thought, unless somebody has. You know, they can create their own split screen sort of version and there's infinite numbers of, you know, combinations that you could make. Uh, we just assumed that rather, you know, somebody rather than doing the heavy lifting would, you know, cut a fairly straight up version, which we were quite curious to see ourselves, like what it would be like, what it would be like having spent so much time yeah. on it. But uh, you're right, you know, like you would kind of think that people would take that even further, you know, say, okay, well, let's, you know, one of the ideas which we never really got around to was having a lot more sort of, uh, sort of media artifacts in it, like, you know, what Tracy was watching on TV or what her favorite videos would be or, uh, you know, other moving images, whether it's uh, archival stuff or kind of more stream of consciousness. And I think... I might have been trying to kind of jam that through at some point, but it was just so already so kind of time intensive. That was, if we had another three months, we probably would have added this other layer of, um, you know, seeing a little bit of stuff on TV or, you know, whatever visual candy that we could put in. But then it's rights and all this sort of stuff. So I guess that was the other hope that somebody would just take that and make the bootleg thing where they're cutting in clips of Apocalypse Now and you know whatever else they felt like. <laughs> when you uh, decided to first try this out with Picture Claire, what was kind of the impetus behind that? Because it's it's interesting that <clears throat> when you have the split split screen, parts of it may be from a different temporal line than right. the others. Some will be memories, and they'll have that kind of filter. But it, it's not also a memory because it's from the POV of the camera as opposed to, I say camera as in like the character's camera almost, but also the, the camera that's recording it. Right. Um, how did that play into the story for you? Uh, with Tracy, or with, with Claire, or yeah, with Tracy? Yeah, with Claire. With Claire, you know, like with Tracy, it was, it was kind of, yeah, it was, it, it kind of felt like a memory thing. Like that was the surprising thing was when we first looked at it and he would take, the editor Jeremy or, or Matt would take a scene with maybe three or four takes and run them simultaneously and they would kind of shimmer and there was this kind of created this kind of feeling of like somebody to me anyway somebody remembering something it had yeah. this sort of memory device of her thinking about her crappy life and her imagining perhaps something in the future so it had this really neat temporal kind of thing and with, with uh, picture Claire 
<clears throat> it was really more, I guess it's sort of, the idea was to sort of, you know, with Claire it was about a woman that couldn't speak any English. And so it, was, it began as a way to kind of, you know, show kind of the inside, you know, what might be happening emotionally. Her, it played out better in, in Tracy, I think, where you get this sort of more of an emotional portrait of somebody, how they're feeling, how they're thinking. She's always off balance and she's kind of all, she's having a nervous breakdown, basically, this, this young teenage girl. And with Claire, it was more of a, you know, riffing a bit more on the Thomas Crowd thing, but it was more stylish and, um, I don't know, her being French, we thought maybe French people are a bit more stylish <laughs> than English people. So, well, there is a shot where it's almost like the painting new descending the stairs because as she's moving, like it cuts it. Right. Yeah, it's yeah. got that kind yeah, of yeah, that kind of shutter chop thing. So, <clears throat> um, Claire was a bit curtailed, you know, because there was a bit of there was a lot of debate whether we should even do this at all. And the producer was thinking initially it was kind of weird and I wanted to do more. We ended up using it as a more transitional device, uh, transitional from scene to scene, like a kind of a credit sequence. And traditionally that's where split screens have been probably used the most in movies as more kind of transitional things rather than at the full body of the scene. Um, but the editor, Jeremy Muntz, was the guy on Claire that sort of helped start to create the language. Because initially I was like, know not too sophisticated in terms of the how the framing would work but he we started to bring in graphic novels and things and see like a page of a graphic novel is not just squares they're like long bars and sometimes it splashes across and it's you know really amazing things that you know graphic novels do and so that was one of our inspirations and you know uh, there's this painter Mondrian who who does these sort of colored squares I painted sometime in the 20th century, I think. Um, so I guess Claire was the kind of the, it was a kind of a, the reason to kind of create a little style and a little grooviness to the movie, which was, you know, fairly traditionally classically shot. It was kind of like, duh, 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 duh. and uh, yeah, so it just helped create a little boop doop doo you know. Uh, but did still like it a lot and wish we had had the time and the uh, support to sort of do it more in Claire and that was a kind of a one of those weird films where it was like it didn't really quite work out the way I don't know I thought I was making a, a kind of a arty uh, girl, lost girl movie and the producer thought he was making a you know a you know more of a uh, film noir kind of mystery runaround movie, which it sort of was a little bit of both, but wasn't enough of one or the other, so it was kind of a little, people weren't quite sure what it was, I guess. You've had like a kind of violent reaction to it in the past, has that changed over time, your relationship with the film? Um, well, we ended up making this movie that, I don't know if you've ever seen this uh, making of movie? I believe I have, yeah. Which is the pretty hilarious, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, you. It was one of those things that, okay, this is part of the reason I do adaptations, because this was a movie that I kind of nurtured on my own. I was like, ah, oh, it's this girl, and you know, she has a dream about going on the moon, and she's sort of lost, she can't speak the language. <clears throat> Not exactly a rocketing plot, you know? So 
it was one of those things that you labor on for years, right? You're kind of working out images and stories and uh, eventually I found a, a writer and she did her best to kind of try to map out my, I don't know, unconscious sort of, you know, trance of whatever this movie was for me, which I'm still probably trying to figure out. Um, so, you know, basic, all that to say, you know, you go and you do all this stuff and at the end, you know, lights come up and everybody's like, that was underwhelming or, you know, you know, so you're kind of like, wow, I fucking blew it, right? Or it's not really, the bird did not sing, you know, and you think, wow, after years of kind of struggling. So I almost felt like, well, I'm not done, you know, somehow I'm not finished the movie, even though the movie was finished. So a couple of, about a month later, I'm on this airplane going somewhere and there's a movie on the plane and it's a Hollywood movie can't remember the name, but it's about all these people waiting in a hotel for the director to arrive, and there's a press conference going to happen, and there's like, I, think, I don't know, Julia Roberts, but it's one, you know, big movies, big, big actors in this movie. And so eventually the director does arrive, and he's all disheveled, and he's, they're like, oh, thank God, he's, you know, it's just in time to screen the print, and he'd been sort of working on the final cut. And so they all sit down with the studio guys and the press people, and they watch it and it's this you know the, you see the first scene and then it kind of breaks and the director steps in he goes this movie is shitty you know you know and I'm just and he starts to show all this kind of weird behind the scenes stuff and it was hilarious and I was like and that's sort of the end of their movie you see like five minutes or something and I thought that's kind of genius that's kind of awesome so I got all excited and I phoned up Jeremy and I got off the plane I said Jeremy I think I found a way to finish the Claire movie like we're we can do this crazy kind of making of, you know, we'll just take footage. We didn't yeah. shoot anything new. We just took all the footage and we showed like, not so much scenes that weren't seen. It was just like different takes and uh, uh, me just talking over top of it, kind of talking about what went, so what went wrong? Like how come it all didn't work? Was it the script? Was it the casting? Was it me? Was it the producer? Was it the, chemistry among the actors and it was a really hilarious and strange thing to do um, but God bless Jeremy Muntz for sort of <clears throat> that was a six-month <clears throat> experiment and we weren't quite sure what we were doing most of the time until one day he discovered that the characters in the movie were like the characters off-screen that I was Juliette Lewis and Robert Lantos was Gina Gershon and uh, you know, we all had this weird, all the characters in our m weird movie had the, sort of these off-screen filmmaker equivalents. So that's when we started to really have a, a laugh and, you know, make the movie that, you know, like an autopsy of a movie. Most people do the commentaries of like, oh yes, we did this and we were so smart and oh yes, it was awesome, <laughs> you know, and this was more like, well, the film didn't work at all and we're trying to find out why. And so, you know, ha half of it's true, half of it's totally made up. So it's a kind of a, so I consider that like it's one, I guess those two movies, one is the good sister, one's the bad sister, sort of. But it was really fun and crazy to do and it was a, a great kind of thing to make for no money and no, you know, economic uh, 
advantage or whatever. It was just something that was like, film's not finished. Somehow we got to finish this crazy journey. Mm -hmm. And it, to me, the, the, the document, or the, the making of is sort of a much better and funny film. And at one point I was trying to convince the producer and the distributor say, don't, don't, don't release the first one, just release the second one and put the first one on like DVD yeah. as the, you know, make that the commentary or make that the, the extra, the, the DVD bonus, but put out this one as the thing. Yeah. They, but they just were totally confused and, and now it's just this funny bootleg that it gets passed around a little bit, so. Yeah, when I came across it, I just assumed it was the, just an inventive making of. Mm -hmm. But it, it goes to show how DVD has kind of triggered us to, to see these things only as kind of segments that are off to the side as opposed to creations unto themselves. It's own per yeah, I mean, in a way, we kind of riffed off that quite popular at the time, like, uh, you know, DVD commentaries and extras and bonus features and all that sort of stuff. But all those things were quite modular, other than maybe the voiceover during the running of the movie. So we just kind of took that genre, I guess, and formalized it a bit as its own piece that, you know, I'm sure that sort of, there's other models or examples of that, that, that we could say, oh yeah, that's been done a lot before. I mean, it's sort of in a weird sort of way, like, uh, the producers in a, in a sense, where it's the movie itself is about the unmaking of the yeah. project. Um, so anyway, yeah, it was a very liberating and fun thing to do. But it also kind of reclaims that that bygone era of Hearts of Darkness or Burden of Dreams or even oh, the yeah, Jaws yeah, making yeah, absolutely. of, right? Yeah, yeah. When we would consider these to be like valuable pieces unto themselves. Oh yeah, like Burden of Dreams to me is a much more entertaining <laughs> movie than Fitzgeraldo. You know, Fitzgeraldo is great, but Burden of Dreams is greater. You know, it's just way better. Uh, you know, the the one about Apocalypse Now is is an equal movie, I yeah. think, in a certain sort of way, because both are pretty great movies. So yeah, they're kind of the classic making of movies, and it, you can go right to you know the genre of those movies like Day for Night, yeah. which is movies about movies. I've always loved movies about movies and maybe it shows my lack of life experience that basically I just <laughs> make movies about movies, you know, or not just, but I find those endlessly fascinating. How do you respond to something like Claire or Dance Me Outside being considered like outliers in your, your filmography the way like they don't really add up to the same thing? Well, it seems like when people write about your work, they tend to push a kind of through line. Right, And it doesn't right. work for something like Claire or Tracy right. or Dance Me right. Outside. Well, you know, because the things that you first become known for is like, oh, that's the guy that does road movies or yeah. he does, he likes rock music or whatever. So, you know, people just get used to thinking of you like that. So in a way, I like the idea of like doing stuff that's sort of outside, Dance Me Outside, was a project I would never have done on my own. I wouldn't have thought, hey, let's do a movie about some Indian kids on a reservation. I don't think it would ever have naturally kind of sprung out of me, but it was because Norman Jewison came and said, you know, would you take a look at this project? We've been trying to make it for 10 years and haven't been successful. He had seen, I think, Highway 61 and really enjoyed it. He's, and he'd been, he's kind of like my godfather, Norman. Anyway, so I read it. And I was like, wow, this is surprisingly entertaining. I read the, the book. 
Uh, and then because I was asked, I couldn't not do it. Like he's Norma Jewison. <laughs> so you, you can't say, oh, I'm too busy or I'm not interested. And uh, it was a great, it was probably one of the best shooting experiences ever, you know, of making this movie. Um, it was a challenge for sure to kind of create this script and, you know, maybe not the best adaptation ever, but fairly successful in the sense that it was adapted from a book of short stories. Um, but I came, really came to love that project and it was very difficult to kind of write it uh, because we went through, and there's a long, long, went through a lot of writers and finally there was no money left and I had to sit down on one weekend and just <laughs> write it, right? Because you know, I had to see Norman on the Monday and I couldn't say, oh, the last guy blew it or he wrote a script that was like way too expensive. The problem with being Norman Jewison is everybody thinks you got a lot of money. So these writers would come on and think, oh, okay, write a movie that would cost, you know, 15 million. <laughs> uh, but it came clear at some point that no, no, this was going to be maybe a couple million dollars at, at most. So it's, I, I kind of like having those things. I was just at, this, at the lab this morning actually and they were doing this new transfer of Dance Me Outside and hadn't seen it since we made it basically because yeah. once it's made I kind of never really watched them again. But there was no sound because they were just doing the color. But it was really awesome to kind of go, oh yeah, it was like looking at the scrapbook. So I like having these kind of odd things because they do take you to places that you would not ordinarily go. And I think it's healthy and it's good. It kind of connects you to the world, pulls you out of your, you know, suburban, you know, whatever that is that, you know, defines you and challenges you in a completely different way. Uh, you know, Claire was a little like that, but Claire's kind of very much like Tracy in a way, like, you know, the girl wandering around trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Um, and Tracy, yeah, it's not the road film, uh, but yeah, I like to sort of break the pattern, you know, it'd be fun to sort of, he's doing what? He's making a porno film or he's making a, you, <laughs> you know, know porno a film? 30s musical? Well, I've always thought it would be fun to make a, like a kind of classic 70s, like when porno films were shown in theaters, yeah. you know, like the 42nd Street yeah. Grindhouse things. There's something kind of hilarious about watching porno with a crowd of people. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever experienced that. <laughs> no. But I was asked once at the Bloor Cinema, which is a, a you know, great sort of rep house in Toronto, um, they or we contacted them and they were looking for people to kind of do a guest program. So one of the programs, my friend Malcolm Ingram and I, we programmed, he picked Streets of Fire and I picked Days of Heaven. So we each came, we introduced the film and that seemed to go off really well. And they said, oh, you want to do another one? That seemed to go really well. And I thought, and they, they said, well, you know, this date is kind of difficult because it's during the Toronto Film Festival and usually we don't get a lot of people coming to the theater because of the festival. So we decided to pick. I think I just maybe finished reading The Pornographer's Poem by Michael Turner who wrote Hardcore Logo, yeah. the, the author. So we chose Deep Throat okay. and we thought let's play it at the Bloor, right? And the guy at the Bloor was like, really? You wanna? This hasn't really ever been shown here. I don't think it's <laughs> ever been shown in Toronto, you know, because it was all this controversy about it when it came out. So anyway, they publicized it, Deep Throat playing at the Bloor. It was like a Sunday afternoon or something, <laughs> I don't know place was packed, right? And uh, 
I'd never, I'd never even seen it. I just picked it. I thought, well, it's one of the classic porno films. And it was really funny and pornographic. And uh, my accountant, Connie, was sitting beside me during the screening. And I, at one point, she had her hand on my thigh. That's all, you know. Yeah, that's an interesting. She got her all frisky. She got her all she frisky. She got all frisky. Anyway, it was pretty funny. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's lots of different sort of adventures to have. When you, that's the great thing about making a movie is that it's a sort of a plan your own adventure. You know, it's not like it's not quite like booking a trip to Cuba, but it's you know more and more you start to think as you know how to do it, or you kind of know how it goes, you start to think, hmm, you know, we could come up with a story that's set in Buenos Aires or something and find a way to get there. And, and then we're sort of on this paid, sort of, not paid vacation exactly, but it's like a paid adventure. And you have like a pretty awesome time. You kind of, to be any place where people are kind of living there and helping you do your thing, it's kind of fun. What yeah. went into the uh, decision to pursue Hardcore Logo beyond just the original? There was the, there's the second one that came out, and then there's the, the third one that ended up being Trigger. Trigger yeah, 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 yeah. So there's been three. Yeah. So logo one, two, three. <laughs> the unofficial. Um, so what, what was the decision to do more? Yeah. yeah. Well, Hugh was a big part of that. Hugh Dillon, who plays the title character in the first one. He plays the character of Joe Dick in Hardcore Logo. And... There was a time when Hugh, he'd uh, disbanded the Headstones, which was his baby for many years, and, and uh, he was kind of out of, just didn't know what to do, right? He, so he started showing up at my place saying, oh, we should do like a sequel to Larko Logo. I love that character. It's so great. And, da, da, da. and you know, he'd got a lot of compliments over the years of, of his performance, and people you know, grew to love that movie. So we started, I said, I, well, you're dead. And, yeah. You know, like, I don't know, what, what are we going to do? So he, you know, he was pitching me like, okay, it's in hell, you know, and I'm there drinking goat urine martinis and uh, da, 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 and I'm Joe Dix doing stuff in hell. And <laughs> I've always loved stories about hell and the devil. And so we, we kind of started working on this for, you know, he'd come over every, so he was kind of driving it and I mean, we bang on Noel Baker's door, the writers, Noel! You know, he would have like a grand, put it in his hand, say, like, write this fucking movie, right? And <laughs> Noel's in his bathrobe, it's two in the morning, right? It's like, what are you guys doing here? Anyway, so this went on and on for quite some time. And there were quite a few incarnations of this, whatever the sequel was. And I was quite torn, because it was like, I don't really want to make a sequel. Like, I, what can you do? Like you can't, you can't do it again. You can't get the guys together again and do it because the chemistry or the time, there's a time for everything. But you know, Hugh was fairly insistent and it was, it's always fun hanging out with Hugh because he's a really hilarious guy and he's got great ideas. So we got it to a place where I thought, eh, I could buy this. And then he got this job on Flashpoint where he's like <laughs> yeah. this number one and he's like this sniper cop. And, you know, the first year was like, okay, we'll shoot it during the break. And then, then he got this other job on this other show called uh, Durham County. So suddenly he was like the hardest working guy. And this went on for two or three years. And then finally I said, Hugh, I don't know if we can wait anymore. Or he says, ah, it's okay. I'm not really crazy <laughs> about the script anymore anyway. I'm like, oh, God, you know, like. So <clears throat> I phone up 
Scottish Dave, who was the guy at the time writing this, I said, Dave, I got some bad news, like the script we've been working on for four <laughs> years. Hugh just, Hugh, it's, Hugh's, it's not what he wants to do. He wants to do something with Callum. He thinks the two of them should be in it. Because at first Callum didn't want to be in it. He was like, I don't, you know, like, I don't know, maybe or maybe not. He wasn't really committing. So Dave's like, oh, that's, that's not good news, right? Because Dave was working, he was over in Scotland. And so anyway, my friend, uh, a friend of mine, Jody Calero, I was kind of depressed and thinking, wow, this is a, throw this in the garbage now. And Jody says, ah, my daughter, she's, she doesn't want to see some 45-year-old rock guy. She likes bands like Dimanican and Billy Talent. And I'm like, Dimanican, I just did this documentary about those guys. And Care is just, a, she's just this great, visual and they rock out and so phoned up Scottish Dave I said Dave what you know can we take that script that we have basically keep the basic kind of idea of it of like Joe Dick returning from beyond you know he's he hasn't died he's just been hiding out in Africa and he's been doing these sort of internet shows called Dr. Africa where he had this kind of uh, mask over his face because he's a doctor and and we just dubbed it into Swahili and stuff, right? It was this huge hit in Africa. Anyway, it's like this long kind of thing. But the basic story of the script was he shows up at my door and he's been in hiding for 10 years and then he wants to, you know, go to England and tour and do this solo thing and then he, he gets Bucky Hate and they record this new album at the Scottish Castle, right? That was the sort of the thing. So I'm like, so Dave says, well, you know, Scottish Dave's not really Scottish, he's actually English, but he lives in <laughs> Scotland. But Dave says, uh, he says, well, that's no problem. Like, Dave's great. He's one of the great writers because nothing phases him. It's like, we've just lost the lead actor and character of the movie we've been working on for four years, but Dave can deal with it. So he comes back, he says, well, that care failure girl, why don't we, why don't we just have her... Uh, She's, she's uh, inhabited by the spirit of Joe. Like he's, he's, what do you call it? She's possessed. She, she claims that she's possessed by Joe and Joe's writing songs. I'm like, well, that's fucked up, right? And, but that's pretty funny. So basically that's what we did. And we sort of, you know, uh, I'm kind of pulled out of my sort of middle age television director lifestyle and kind of end up in this dance hall in Saskatchewan where we record the, this album with Bucky Haight. So it's sort of, sort of the same. So it's kind of amazing uh, often when these films, you start on a project, you think it's going to be one thing and then it ends up being like, wow, I thought we were going to make this movie with Hugh coming back from hell or from wherever he is and making this album and then it's like, well, it's not Hugh, it's this girl and from this band that, anyway, so it always amuses me to uh, see where things end up because you think you got it planned, you think you got it nailed and then the world says, well, you know, you got it to this point, we'll just take over from here, you know, and you gotta just roll with it. So, you know, you try to keep some element of control, but you also kind of got to surf the wave that's kind of coming, you know. And so. if it ended up being Billy Talent, like the meta levels would collapse in and on themselves. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, they were supposed to be in it at one point, and then the tour schedule didn't work out and blah, 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 but uh, they were pretty funny guys. So, uh, so yeah, so we did that, and then Hugh's still like, well, you know, he couldn't believe that we actually shot this. Yeah. He was like, what? <laughs> right? You, Scorned. You just did it, right? <laughs> he kind of, like, he was kind of shocked. 
So he says, well, we still got to do one. We still have to do mine. So I'm like, all right, well, let's get Callum. So Callum's like, okay, great. We've got McIver to write this script with, you know, the two of them. I said, we probably won't get any, we don't have much money or blah, blah. So let's, I was kind of inspired by my dinner with Andre. Yeah. Which is a pretty awesome movie. And it's shockingly good in the sense that it's like two guys having dinner. And they just tell, they just kind of, and so we thought, well, let's just sort of do that. So I pitched this idea to Daniel McIver, who's a Toronto playwright yeah. and really talented super guy. And, he, and weirdly, he wrote back and he said, I, that's a great idea. Because he knew Callum, they'd worked together. Uh, he didn't know Hugh, but he got to meet Hugh. Anyway, so this went off. Uh, and it went, went on for a while. Script very quick, Daniel's super fast. And we finally got everybody together. And Hugh and Callum hadn't seen each other for a while. And uh, we had a great read-through, and then later that night I got a call, and he was like, uh, we have different ideas about what it should be. And anyway, <laughs> without getting into it, because <laughs> it was about these two guys who had both decided to be, be like Alcoholics Anonymous guys, you know, and it's about these, because Daniel had just kind of checked into the program, and this was a really important thing to him, and he structured a script, which was quite smart, uh, through the 12 steps of the program. So if you look at the movie, each, there's kind of 12 sort of unmarked but clear chapters in, in thematic ways of like the steps of the 12th step, right? And uh, so then when they decided they would rather be drinking and whoring and doing drugs, which Thanks. they're rock guys, so you can't put, you can't hold that against them, right? I was again faced with this decision of like, do I throw the script away? Do I sort of fire Daniel and re re rewrite it? But the script was so good. Uh, again, Daniel and I sat together and we thought, I said, well, you know, we could maybe just, at one point we were going to make the movie but have cast like two kids as Joe and Billy, like two 10 year olds, and have, <laughs> don't, don't change the dialogue at all. Just, you know, like a kind of Bugsy Malone thing. Yeah, yeah. Just have them like, you know, cursing and talking about adult shit and, you know, but they're 10, right? Alcoholics and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're both <laughs> AA. And we thought for a couple of days, we, we were quite jonesing on this. We thought, ah, oh, this is great. And then we're like, man, I don't know, maybe not. And then we just thought, I, I, me or him said, let's make them chicks. And uh, pretty much we were like Molly and Tracy. And without changing a lot of the script, uh, then we just shot, you know, we shot that. So again, it's like, oh, what I thought was going to be a movie with Hugh and Callum, Hardcore Logo 3, turned out to be a chick movie, you know? And again, the surprise of like the film or the project can take you and then just go somewhere else. Surprise, surprise. So you try to, yeah, listen to the project, I guess, and, 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 uh, Adapt, <laughs> you know, adapt to the ever-changing moods of the of the project and the world and the financing and who's available and who's not and it's, it's kooky kind of game. Another surprise is how it plays off of this movie is broken, which came out so they came out in such quick succession. They both seem to kind of delve into Toronto in a single evening and kind of the cool right, interesting right. things yeah, yeah, that yeah. happen, but kind of from a different perspective, obviously. You have the fans in one, you have the artists in the other, but they're doing similar things. 
That's true, yeah, because in Broken, they're fans, right? It's like uh, when we did, you know, and they're kind of hopeful and, you know, wow, music's great and, you know, it's great to be 22 and just doing shit. Whereas the trigger, they're like kind of bitter and, kind of, you know, hate the music business. And, uh, but at the same time, it's this sort of, it's about friendship or it's about people coming together and uh, working it out. But yeah, they're, they're, you know, writers have often said to me, uh, you know, they said, you know, generally when you, when you compress the time frame, you know, you get a lot more, the stakes are sometimes clearer, maybe higher, but, but often clear and, and it's that, just that time frame of that that day or that night or that week or that four days, you know, there's just something uh, great. Uh, it's quite a gift, I think, to writers and dramatists to sort of have that framework because then you go, okay, that's the box you're in and, and everything's got to happen somehow within that little time frame. So yeah, actually, I hadn't thought of that. They are nice little companion pieces. It's like an A side, B side. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a little bit of music in Trigger, and there's a lot in Broken, and there's you know a lot of chatting in Trigger, and not a lot in you know. So it's and yeah, so yeah, that's a good double bill maybe. <laughs> One question I had about this movie is Broken is a lot of people talk about Broken social scene. A lot of people talk about kind of the narrative of the 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 lovers. We'll call them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all three. And uh, but there's these there's kind of a avant-garde thread running through it as well when you have those kind of filtered like grain shots that will recur and then there's the ending. Right. Well, I was curious what went into that decision. Like the weirdo stuff in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, basically right? let's call it the weirdo <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well sometimes you're in the editing room and you're just bored because you've seen it like yeah. a thousand times. I remember one day in there and I was like, uh what we're doing, I'm trying to amuse my editor, I guess, and say, okay, there's this, we were going through this footage of Toronto, we were going like, oh, we should show a couple of shots of Toronto, the waterfront, and we found some footage, and we were looking at it, and, and then I, I don't know, I was like, let's put in like a baby crying or something, and a, let's put that shot upside down, and the editor's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and because there's nobody telling you you can't, and I've always been a kind of a, I like, I've always liked sort of weird experimental films. Like yeah. I kind of grew up, not, uh, in film school I kind of was turned on to experimental cinema, right? We Bruce had this Elder. Bruce Elder, who yeah. was like our sort of genius uh, boy wonder professor. And I, you know, up until then I'd seen Clint Eastwood and Planet of the Apes and, you know, sort of regular movies. I'd never ever heard of films like these, you know? I was like, wow, this is just nuts. But to me, uh, they were the, the closest thing to sort of punk rock music, because these yeah. were films generally made by a couple of people, not 50 people. And for us, at the time in film school, these were the films that we thought we could make these films. Like, it's possible, we don't need actors even. Like, we didn't know actors, we didn't know writers, we just, loved fucking around with cameras and editing and and there were all these sort of genius films and weird like this whole history of avant-garde cinema going back to you know whatever the f 20s even you know and uh, 
and the way they were talked about in, in school and the books and things we read, Michael Snow and Bruce Bailey and Hollis Frampton and all these amazing filmmakers. And, you know, they were more like, uh, you know, ambient albums or, I mean, so we were tremendously inspired by, you know, the fact that these could be made with a Bolex and, and a pack of smokes, you know, <laughs> like you could make this movie. So. There's always been part of me that's carried that, I think, along. Maybe thus the split screen stuff, like the, the crying building, the upside down shot in Broken, the kind of, some, some of the materialistic kind of editing techniques that I like to encourage the editors to sort of play with, like the opening of Broken, where it gets all Absolutely, crazy yeah. in the film, I think it sort of stops at one point, yeah. and you're like, what? Because I just, I think I was riffing off it's called this, this broken social yeah, scene, yeah. and they had a book called This Book is Broken, and we kind of stole that, so I said, this movie is broken. So I said, well, every couple times, the film should just seem like it's, it broke, or it's, something is wrong with it. Like it's, it's the shot's upside down, or it, the sound goes out, or it's, it goes off the rails somehow. So, and because we, you know, it doesn't cost a lot of money, and nobody's really going, we gotta sell it in, like in Peoria. Like, <laughs> it, it, it's, you know, we feel kind of, you know, mischievous and like, wow, I can't believe we're getting away with this, right? And, and because it's rock and roll too, rock and roll accepts a certain anarchy to it. You know, you kind of want it to be a little bit uh, raw, a little bit off the beaten track, you know? So, that was really fun to play with music. You know, I've always loved music movies and videos and all that sort of thing. So, it, music to me has always given me sort of permission to kind of do whatever you want, because as long as the music's there, you're not going to get too lost, right? So, yeah, because Hardcore Logo is actually a bizarrely experimental film at points, but nobody ever really picks up on that. They're, they mostly talk about the story or even like miscast it as kind of a mockumentary. But like, there's so many just formal decisions in that. Oh, film. it's great. It's so hilarious. Like Duff Smith, who caught the, the logo too. I mean, there's the crazy stuff in there. Uh, and sometimes it would just be stuff that he would be just screwing around with and I would see it and I'd go, that's great, you know, yeah. let's do more, just keep that in, don't, so what? Um, and just some great stuff. And so it's, because we had, again, time, we had to find the film and that we shot so much stuff because we're shooting on these, really, these cameras. We're shooting on cameras just like this. And I'd never really shot with that light a crew before. It was like, even Tracy, we had sort of a kind of more of a formalized crew and shooting way. But with this, you know, uh, we kind of sh would shoot our day get it in six hours, and then we'd have a few hours, like, what do you want to shoot now? Yeah. So we'd interview people, we'd go shooting trees, and we'd do time-lapse stuff, and uh, John Price, who shot it, is, is really amazing. He comes from experimental cinema, too. Like, yeah. he's a real amazing uh, sort of photographer and just beautiful composer of images. And so, you know, you'd let people f off the leash for a little bit couple hours a day and you know let's go shoot some close-ups of these or you know I don't know let's go outside at night and so we ended up having all this other crazy stuff that we didn't script and we didn't really expect to get so 
where Duff was kind of saddled with, and so he's just started to play around. So the first three months was just fucking around time, just seeing what combinations were kind of interesting. And then once we had assessed, it was kind of like Tracy too, where we played for three months before even worrying about story. It was almost like, let's create the rushes and then, and get to know the material. And then we'll, you know, it's pretty clear, like, oh, that scene doesn't work because the acting is really bad or uh, it's just a boring scene or uh, we don't need that backstory. So you kind of work out the narrative stuff pretty quickly. And then it's, uh, yeah, it was just, it's a crazy experimental film, like the uh, Harcourt Logo 2, which just sort of delights me. It takes me back. I got to take it to Ryerson and show Bruce Elder. I yeah. think he would be delighted <laughs> to see it. So, do you ever see a film called uh, David Holtzman's Diary? No. Which was a film I saw in film school. And I guess this was um, one of those big revelations about fact and fiction. It was presented as this documentary. This New York guy, <clears throat> you know, he's a filmmaker. He gets this new camera. He decides, his life's fucked up. And he decides, you know what? If I put my life on camera, I'll think I'll figure it out. Like I'll, inter I'll sort of photograph me and I'll photograph my girlfriend sleeping and I'll shoot my neighborhood and and uh, one day he gets a new lens and he's like following people with his new lens and it's very <laughs> cinema verite very charming and at the end his apartment gets broken into and all his stuff gets stolen and he the film has to end and I was like I was totally with it all the way along and at the end it's like screenplay Kit Carson like who's the I think he's made a bunch of films uh, Ellen Kit Carson and uh, who's the other guy and I was shocked Right, that this was completely faked. Right, it's completely fake. I was I remember being quite stunned. It's like, <laughs> wow, you can use this kind of flopsy, flipsy, documentary, loosey goosey kind of language, and it totally makes people believe that it's true. So I, that's part of my. That was part of my appeal for making Hardcore Logo One, which was a fake documentary, yeah. and this one as well as a kind of a. It's like a diary experimental personal diary film and there's a quite a tradition in experimental films I think of like diary films and you know this is my story and you know I'm going to tell it <laughs> cinema you know so anyway uh, what about a love supreme oh love supreme that's another crazy uh, based on a book by uh, Kent Nussie who is a Toronto writer it's his, it's his first novel so I'm sitting at the bar at the not at uh, Gatineau Nero, which is my coffee place at College in Crawford, and you know every morning's a bunch of us, and there's like Brian, the house painter, and there's you know Leonel, the also a house painter, uh, just a collection of different people. There's Joe Pantaloni, and there's you know the guys, and so one day Brian, the house painter, slides his book over, because he, <laughs> he knows I'm a film guy, right? Yeah. He's like, uh, you know, and I'm like, what's this? He goes, oh. Yeah, it's this really great book. You should, you're a filmmaker. You should read this. You know, I think it would make a really good film. And I come to realize that Brian is secretly taking acting lessons at night, right? The house painter, <laughs> that he wants to be the guy, right? So I read the book and I go, "Wow, it's a beautiful, stunning book." But there's barely a story in there. Like I don't think it would make much of a movie. And he looked kind of sullen and sad. And I said, "But you know, if you want, uh, you know, I'll think I'll think about it and maybe." you know, we'll take some pictures for your acting class of a scene, pick a scene. So we go out and we shoot the scene of him, I don't know, walking around 
book. And the story's about a guy who's trying to write a book about John Coltrane's seminal album, Love Supreme. And he meets a neighborhood girl and they have a couple of dates and that's pretty much the story, right? So it's not a riveting narrative, but it's a beautifully sort of told story about neighborhood and love and music and what Coltrane is trying to say and <clears throat> about jazz and men and women and drinking and you know, all the good things. So then we thought, and I remembered, oh, there's that great movie by Chris Marker, Le Jeté. So we kind of look at that and I think, well, if Brian the house painter wants to buy the beers and the pizza every Saturday, we'll go out and shoot him doing stuff from the book. So we start to do this. And then we start to get other people involved and they say, okay, I'll play Carrie the girl and I'll play, you know, Harris the friend. So over, I guess, the last six years, we've been going out occasionally and shooting the book. No script, no money, no budget, just Rick O'Brien, the manager, former manager of Bar Italia with a still camera, and have collected about 20,000 images, and quite kind of stunning, and kind of followed the story from winter to spring to summer, and we shoot the Taste of Little Italy and the Easter parade that down College Street and the hot waitresses and all the bars and you know and suddenly the stories emerge that we go wow this is actually turning into something very beautiful so about a month ago we finally decided we should start maybe editing this to see if it if it is something and we were quite delighted to see that same editors Jeremy Muntz. Um, uh, who cut Tracy and Pontypool and uh, Claire's Hat, like a real genius, awesome editor. So we've now kind of created rushes. So now we're kind of saying, okay, we can now, I think, find a way to make this a little movie. So it's a, it's a weird, I don't know, certain things propel you or certain projects attract you for different reasons. Sometimes it's for money. Like, I'll do Killer Wave, you know? They pay me a lot of money and I'll go to Montreal and shoot Killer Wave <laughs> about killer tidal waves trying to attack America. And then I'll, you know, you do Love Supreme for pizza and beer because you think, uh, really in the end, you think, well, what's it all about? You just really wanna, as the filmmaker, as the guy, you're like, what, do I, what am I doing this for? I don't know. And then you realize, well, I just wanna have, record pictures of pretty girls and, cool guys and awesome places where we hang out and it becomes this sort of record of your life at that time, sort of, or your friends and your, it's kind of this heightened kind of scrapbook with a soundtrack and nicer photography, you know? So, but yeah, Love Supreme, it's probably another four or five years before it's finished because it's just, we just work on it when, uh, when we're sort of in the mood. But now that we've, for the first time, we thought, wow, I think we've got a, a something here. And I don't know if it'll be a feature or if it'll be an hour or if it'll be premiere on a cell phone. Like it's <laughs> sort of, I don't know, it's one of those weird things that I'm sure like these other movies where it started to be one thing and ended up something else completely unknown to me at the time. Uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, the love, a love Supreme's got some good karma around it and, you know, I'm sure it's going to end up uh, to be something pretty interesting. As long as it's not boring. As long as it's not <laughs> dull-witted and, and slow and 
like whatever you say about Hardcore Logo 2, it's not dull. It's <laughs> weird and perhaps quite indulgent, but you know, it's entertaining and uh, perhaps a slightly misguided, but you know, it's got a good heart. So. How would you characterize your relationship with television? Because you have Twitch City that is basically canonized in Canada at this point, but then you have a lot of writers that will refer in varying terms to the rest of the work as kind of hack work. But it doesn't seem like it's fair to just have two extremes. Now, I feel a little bad about, because in, 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 uh, in um, Hardcore Logo 2, I end up in an ice cave with my spirit animal. <laughs> And it speaks to me and it tells me that stop making shitty television with a pedophile. And it says, you should be, you know, you should, you should uh, make movies like you're supposed to. And I just felt a little bit bad about that line because, I mean, yes, I, I started making movies before I started making television. But I, when I think about it, I grew up watching television way more than movies. Like, I, you know, you'd see the occasional movie, but it was more about, I think it was television that shaped me way more than movies, you know, watching Land of the Giants and watching, you know, Get Smart and, you know, Mission Impossible and, uh, you know, Ghost, uh, you know, whatever, whatever was going. And television was a huge, huge, and it's funny, I realized, you know, I never really talk about that because most filmmakers go, oh yes, it was the Bertolucci film I saw when I was <laughs> 12 that uh, hearkened me to the cinema nothing wrong with Bertolucci, but weirdly, I think it was probably television that excited me about the idea of like, I don't know, stories on moving pictures and, and uh, that sort of thing. So, um, you know, television is a great way to make money and it's a great way to learn your craft. I don't know how you would do it if you didn't, if I, you know, how to be a director without constantly, I've shot a lot of stuff and Generally, I'd say you know, 95% of the time, I've had an awesome time and met incredibly talented people. And you know, it might not be the kind of story, television story, that you would go. I think I'm going to make a story about you know, some teenage girls that run a soda fountain or something, <laughs> you know, whatever. But at the same time, it's like you're always, you know, you're meeting great actors for the most part, and. Uh, very talented writers and designers and DOPs and most of the people that end up working with me in these independent features come from television. Rob Gray, who's their production designer, I met him on a television commercial. Steve Cousins, I met him on a series. Steve shot Tracy Fragments, I met Steve on this show called Tilt, which was about gambling in Vegas. Um, gosh, you know, Steve McCaddy, I met him on Emily of New Moon. He played Cousin Jimmy, the retarded farmhand. <laughs> and Steve plays the, uh, you know, the title character in Pontypool. So, yeah, like, yeah. Uh, so many people that I met. I, and, I, and it's kind of like an awesome casting goldmine for talent. Because, you know, I don't know how it goes in other cities, but this Toronto runs on television. and. A lot of cities now. It's so, you know, you know, features are my first uh, choice because in features the director is the guy or the girl. Whereas in television, it's the writer and the producer, and the director is really there to kind of just get it done on time <laughs> and and bring some excitement and keep everybody's spirits up and you know bring a little flourish and. 
if you become invited to become part of the gang, like that happened on certain shows like uh, Degrassi or Queer as Folk or there's lately The Transporter, which was just shot, uh, and a few other shows where you like do a whole bunch of them. So you become, and it becomes really fun that way. So you're not just coming and going, but you become part of the whole machine and are then maybe allowed a little bit more to make a proper, make more of a contribution and it becomes a bit more close to you. But uh, yeah, I love, you know, and everybody I talk to now, they're all like, wow, you know, doing this and that. We're actually, you know, cooking up this series uh, idea early on. It's called 69. It's about Rochdale College, which was this awesome college in uh, Toronto during the late 60s, an experimental college that started with high hopes and great ideals and uh, great thinkers and quickly descended into the sort of Lord of the Flies kind <laughs> of... Uh, swamp of drugs and uh, paranoia and craziness. Dream Tower, right? That Dream Tower, yeah. yeah. So Ron Mann has made a documentary, a short documentary about it called Dream Tower, and there's been some uh, books. But it's a fantastic, uh, I think, a fantastic idea for a series. And Brian over there is uh, helping out right now, and we'll see what we can do. But it's every once in a while you think um, oh, be, it's always, because I've always had, you know, we've always been, you know, we've had, we had a series with Twitch City, uh, another series which spun out of Dance Me Outside. Uh, that was I, the res, right? That was the res. Yeah. Um, so it's always been fun to be part of a series, because I like shooting, I like working. And when you make independent films, sometimes it's a long journey between, sh you know, being on set. It's like, wow, finish that one, and maybe four years later you're making the next one, or... So TV is great because it's, uh, I always look at TV as kind of like the, you know, they're like the folk songs of the age. They're kind of singing the songs and the, they're bringing the news. They're commenting. They're kind of more like what Moses Neimer does, for example, and his, his notion of television, I think, is really sort of brilliant and genius. It's about the flow. Yeah. He would say to me, he says, we make a movie a day in television and you film guys are pussies, you know? It takes you like months to make a film. In television, we make a movie a day. And I was like, yeah, so. Um, you mentioned uh, the folk songs, which is a really interesting comparison because it reminds me of kind of how we theorize genre, how there may be repetitive tropes, but it's about what you're saying beneath those repetitions. And I'm wondering how in television, you've worked with genre, like straight-up genres, like Lex, and Pawnee seemed to have a lot of success because of that. Like even though it wasn't a traditional genre film, the fact that it was appealing to that audience and working within that those tropes, it kind of differentiated itself in that way. Yeah, I was really, not to, and I love genre movies. I just I realized well, I haven't really made. Yeah. Like road films are almost a genre, but not. Quite, you know what I mean? There's a history, but you don't think of them the same way you think of horror movies or science fiction movies or cop thrillers or pornos or, you know, clear, clearly defined genres. And, uh, you, know, I've, you know, especially sort of horror and science fiction, I've always loved, like from a small lad, I've always, that was, those are the things I gravitated to first, was like Planet of the Apes and 2001, Silent Running and, uh, Blade Runner and uh, 
you know, Logan's Run and like anything that was sort of vaguely sci-fi or thing, I would be the first to, to see it. And uh, so for some reason it took us a long time to get around to making a sort of a horror movie and I was lucky to run into crazy Tony Burgess. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, Tony keeps me appraised of the chatter and the, and the things that people say about Pontypool because it's a very uh, deep and intelligent group of people that love horror movies. Like they're very, you know, they're very opinionated and they're very, they see everything. They're experts. And they're experts. Yeah. I mean, they see everything and that's, you know, very, very impressive. Uh, so that kind of opened my eyes a little bit to like, wow, this is, so we're gonna do more of that. <laughs> and. Uh, so it's great to play in, because then suddenly you're going, wow, we're right in the genre. So you, you try to, you look at that genre, you look at the canon, you say, okay, well, what are the, what are the scariest movies ever made to yourself? And so you think, okay, well, when we did Pontypool, we were looking at, we are thinking, I don't, maybe I haven't seen a lot of films actually, but, well, The Tenant, that's sort of scary and weird, and Night of the Living Dead, and so there are certain movies that we thought, well, let's, Let's kind of channel some of that sort of claustrophobia and that kind of whatever paranoia and that kind of you see it but you don't see it. So we we knew we were making one of those because we couldn't afford the zombies. So we're yeah. like, okay, we're making one of the ones that you don't see it. You just sort of and it was very effective, I think, for a certain group of people. They're like, wow, you kind of did something in the zombie genre, not even just the horror genre, but the specific a huge zombie fan base of who are very rabid and opinionated I said as I said about their films and so we I feel like we were embraced by the, the zombie people some not so much because we didn't have a lot of gore but there was the general acceptance that we kind of earned our place somewhere in that zombie so we felt very proud of having uh, been invited into the fold you know, having kind of passed the audition. So now we're like, all right, now get us, get us a little bit of coin and we'll, we'll do a little bit more in the, in the zombie genre. What, what does the future hold then? Well, in Zombieland, like Tony's book is called Pontypool Changes Everything. So the plan always from the start was to make a movie for each word of the title. So Pontypool is the first one. Oh, sure, yeah. And I guess the next one will be either called just Changes or Pontypool Changes and then the last one. So it's a little trilogy. So the other two are basically written. We're just doing some polishing and I don't know, it's a winter thing. So it's either shoot in the studio or freeze our asses off <laughs> <laughs> doing these other ones. But they're quite great and they all come from Tony's book and Tony's also quite prolific in some other uh, stories that he's been writing recently. But yeah, genres, you know, Western genre is also a great genre uh, that as I, we were talking earlier about Billy the Kid, so we're yeah. kind of, that's very close. Uh, it's sort of an embarrassment of riches right now because, you know, we've been developing these things for 15 years, yeah. right? So the money that I make in TV land, you know, some of that goes to supporting some writers a little bit, and it's not a lot, but it's just to kind of get it going and once I feel like it's kind of getting something then I'll I'll invest a bit more and 
and try to bring some other money to it. So, and it just takes a long time for, sometimes for these films to be ready, you know? Like it's often, I think the fastest, probably triggers maybe the fastest sort of from like thinking let's make a movie to shooting it. But often it's five, like five years, right? From like, hey, let's make a zombie movie. And then five years later, you'd be lucky to be like calling action. Because it's just, I don't know, it's like all the stuff you're trying to, other stuff you're doing just to kind of make a living or to do whatever it is that you do to focusing on that one thing that's going to be awesome. It just seems to take some time. But yeah, there's lots of amazing stuff right now. So now it's just like we've got to find some rich bastard to <laughs> help us kind of execute, you know? And in your experience, it would start as a zombie film, and then in 10 years, it'd become a Western. Right, right, right. Well, maybe the zombie film becomes the porno film or something, or, you know. <laughs> I think that's a great place to end this. <laughs> Thanks All right. so much, Bruce. Yeah, thank you, thank you. I hope I didn't talk too much. Sometimes no, I could I've like, gone for more, but I got, Brian was giving me the five minutes. The, yeah, I've got my, my daughter's having a, uh, a play tonight, so I've got to oh, go on to see her as a bird in a play. Yeah, so, <laughs> so that's pretty. Uh, yeah, thank you for uh, your conversation. That's yeah, great. No, yeah, great had questions. A lot. Yeah. Is Billy the Kid close? Yeah, it's pretty close. It's uh, we've got a draft, and we sat with Michael, and sort of Don McKellar is attached to it, and he wants to do a full uh, pass. So I'm hoping that this year we we're all, we get all happy with the script, and maybe. If we're lucky, maybe sort of end of next year we go shoot a motherfucking western.